Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and otherwise. This is Mike. I am one of the hosts of My Favorite Malady. Before we begin, I just wanted to say that though my co-host Nancy and I do our best to give you the best information that we can, neither she nor I are doctors or nurses or any kind of currently licensed medical professional. We hope to educate and entertain in equal measure, but please don't take anything we say in this podcast as a substitute for speaking to your own doctor. If you have any specific medical questions about your situation, talk to your doctor. They're going to give you better answers than we possibly could. Hello, ladies, gentlemen, and otherwise, and welcome to yet another episode of My Favorite Malady, the medical history podcast out of the Muter Museum. I am one of your hosts, Mike. And I'm Nancy, museum manager at the Muter Museum. And together, we fight crime. We don't, but we fight ignorance. We want to start with our standard disclaimers. First, that this is a medical podcast, and though we're going to do our best not to say sweary words, we may discuss some heavy topics, including violence, sex stuff, maybe in violent sex stuff, uh, death, illness. And so things can get a little bit intense. Listener discretion is advised. Also, we want to mention that, yes, we're very much aware that we are lifting significant portions of our format from the My Favorite Murder podcast with Karen and Georgia. In fact, Karen and Georgia, if you're listening to this, thank you for shouting out the museum in a recent minisode where you talked about our collection of books about in human skin. Speaking of human skin... Join us on October 20th, 2020 for the Dark Archives book launch with Megan Rosenblum. A fascinating, terrifying look at the rarest books bound in human skin and the stories of their creation. Join us for the book launch of Dark Archives, a librarian's investigation into the science and history of books bound in human skin, featuring author Megan Rosenblum. This virtual presentation will be followed by a Q&A moderated by Anna Doty, Muter Museum co-director and curator, in addition to a special show and tell featuring books mentioned in Dark Archives. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to Muter Museum, that's M-U-T-T-E-R-M-U-S-E-U-M.org, you know how to spell org, slash events. That's MuterMuseum.org slash events. I wanted to start with some listener feedback that we received from one of our college fellows, a man named Dr. Bennett Lorber. Dr. Lorber is also an artist, so he's got some interesting work. If you want to check it out, you can find him on the old internet, look at his paintings. But he's also an infectious diseases and general physician that can, uh, you know, review our material and let us know when we're right, when we're wrong, and when we should change our terms. He sent us some feedback on our last episode, which was the episode on trench mouth and weird gonorrhea. Hi, all. The ANUG, that's uh, trench mouth. The ANUG discussion was fun and medically accurate. Here are just a few comments for your information. Mike suggests mouth gangrene as an alternate term for ANUG. Just so you know, there is a form of mouth gangrene known as NOMA, usually seen in severely malnourished children. It's horrific and a hell of a lot worse than ANUG is. He goes on, ANUG is a synergistic infection due to overgrowth of anaerobic bacteria that are part of the normal oral flora. You don't catch ANUG. The bacteria responsible are already there. They just take over. The mouth rinses used on Nancy's sister are okay because they worked, but the standard treatment is systemic antibiotics directed at the anaerobes. The horrible smell is due to volatile amines produced by the anaerobes. Usual bacteria like staph and strep don't make these smells. 
Some of these amines have names like putrescine and cadaverine. Uh, this, yeah. Anaerobic, by the way, means that uh, they don't breathe oxygen. Just so uh, that's Mike's editorial note. Not yeah. And I mean, the kind of over, oversimplification of all of that is basically that the anaerobes are pooping in her mouth. And that's why I heard yes, they're that. pooping putrescine and cadaverine. As far as the second half of the episode, the gonorrhea half, Dr. Lorber says, for the record, gonococcal meningitis or brain infection is extremely rare. I never saw a case in 45 years of practice, nor did I hear of one in Philadelphia during that time. Gonococcal arthritis is not that rare. I'd see five to seven cases a year. He continues, it looks like it's the newer group B meningococcal vaccine that offers some protection against gonorrhea. The standard four-valent meningococcal vaccine doesn't seem to protect against gonorrhea. Uh, Dr. Lorber goes on, it was the constellation of a sore throat and purulent conjunctivitis that made the smart ER doctor think of gonorrhea. There's nothing about the way the throat looks that would immediately suggest that diagnosis versus some other cause of sore throat. Finally, he continues, Dr. Paul Offit doesn't recommend treating fever in adults because fever enhances the immune response, white blood cell activity, and other good things that help fight infection. The fever or hyperthermia treatments for gonorrhea had a different basis, that being the fact that gonococcus thrives in a very narrow temperature range and dies at the higher temperatures achieved by these therapies. Typical gonorrhea in males causes penile discharge and pain on urination, as was stated, but fever is very uncommon. Thank you all for letting me hear these stories. Nice job. Well, thank you, Dr. Lorber, for your feedback. We really appreciate it. So that's all the old business, I think. I don't have any corrections corners from last week. Do you? No, I don't. I mean, I think my my sister, if and when she listens, might have some corrections for me. <laughs> but, um, you know, she doesn't have, she's not, she's not a doctor. So, you know, we'll leave it at Dr. Lorber's corrections. Fair enough. So this time around, I think it's my turn to go first, but I am actually going to cede my time to our first very special guest. Hooray! On the Zoom, we have Professor Marcia D. Nichols from, what is it, Food Court U? Where are you, uh, Professor yes, Marcia? Yes, that's where I'm at. No, the University of Minnesota, Rochester. I joke because the University of Minnesota, Rochester was for a brief period of time located in a shopping mall above a food court. But that was is. a temporary, is it? Okay, well, then, uh, yeah, uh, Food Court U. Uh, we are, we're supposed to get a new building, but with the, uh, economic, um, downturn because of the, the pandemic, that's pushed into an unknown future again. So we're still there. Oh. But you can eat Panda Express every day for lunch. The restaurants exist in the food court, but unfortunately I have been, um, at working from home since March, um, and do not know, uh, when we will be going back because we're assuming that the spring will look like the fall which means online education shall continue. Good for your safety, I guess. <laughs> Not for my sanity, though. Yeah. So full disclosure, Marcia is one of my oldest and bestest friends. Uh, but also she has a doctorate in, I'm going to say it's the historiography of medicine. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it's actually 18th century literature, but I um, do a lot with uh, 18th century medicine. Specifically midwifery, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And I know I do because I helped edit your thesis you did you did um i owe you a copy of my forthcoming book and more about that later in the plug segment but for right now marcia i'm going to cede my time to you what is your favorite melody this week pure peril fever otherwise known as childbed fever otherwise known as pyemia otherwise known as uh septicema uh, or periontitis um or what we would probably just call sepsis oh boy 
many names over the past many uh, many centuries as uh, different theories about it has uh, emerged. This also has been called pure peril. I'm going to say this word wrong. Um, St. Anthony's fire, Aeropisilius. Um, I might be pronouncing that incredibly bad. This was a scourge amongst uh, women for a very long time, um, especially in the 17th um, and 18th and 19th centuries as men began becoming obstetricians and there were uh, more and more hospitals for lying, what we call lying in hospitals or maternity hospitals uh, that were founded um, over Europe. It, it, it's always existed, but it hadn't been epidemic until that time. It was so epidemic that uh, at one point, um, they think that that was probably the second leading cause of death among women. According to one historian, uh, by 1900, about one in 30 um, women had a chance of dying during pregnancy, and it was probably due to pure peril fever. During epidemics, the, the, the mortality rate was about 40%. It could go up to 40%. It was usually around between 6 to 20%, though. Yeah at most hospitals in the United States and Europe. That's still really bad. <laughs> That's very bad. <laughs> um, there were stories that women would, they would rather stay in the street and deliver than go be delivered in the hospital because they were so convinced they were going to die. So one of the reasons this lasted was just so bad is because doctors, of course, there's no concept of how this was spread. And, um, Doctors, one of the things that doctors thought was that women's um, hysteria or their their sensibility and fear is actually what caused them to become infected. I have so many problems with that. <laughs> I, yes. Another theory was that um, women, because a lot of the women who went to the hospitals and would be subjected to this um, were unmarried, that they died from shame. Uh, um, I, I mean, I think we've all felt that in our hearts, but I don't think it's actually possible. <laughs> it is in, in 18th century novels. Oh, well. <laughs> Women died of a lot of things in 18th century novels, like being frightened by a horse was a really yes, popular cause of death in those novels, if I recall. Fear was a very, very powerful thing. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. So women's imaginations, uh, one of the theories was that women's imaginations, their sensibility was so strong that it could, in fact, uh, produce all kinds of effects, not only like um, monsters like birth effects, but, you know, fetal death, abortion and maternal death. So um, it's, it's on the one hand an incredibly sexist theory. And on the other hand, it gives women a lot of power. I mean, there was actually for a long time, they uh, believed that a woman could hide her infidelity by thinking about her husband at the moment of climax, because then her, if she got pregnant, the child would look like her husband and not look like the man that she was having an affair with. Oh, there's, <laughs> I don't even know what to say about it. Honestly, we do have some texts in the Mutter, in the college of physicians library that uh, describe how some physicians, uh, I think it was a little bit earlier than 17th century, might've been still believed in the 17th century that toads were the product of, uh, putrefying menstrual blood, which I like the idea of like tampons in a public restroom's waste bin turning into toads and emerging. That sounds great to me, but yeah, putrefying menstrual blood was also one of the theories about what caused true pale fever. Um, oh. uh, 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 the fact that you had putrefying menstrual blood or um, the lochia, the blood, um, the kind of bleeding that happens after, after pregnancy. That was another one of the theories as to what caused it. That may not have been completely wrong. 
Uh, not if completely you wrong. Putrefying, if you have putrefying stuff going on down there after childbirth, then it, definitely it was, sepsis is for, a possibility, right? It was a possibility, not because of Loki, but because of just the unsanitary conditions that women were being kept in. So it wouldn't be the Loki itself. It would be being kept on disgusting, bloody sheets, or sometimes not even your own blood, but but um, dirty sheets that another woman had given birth or died on and that you were just put on. For a second, Michael, I thought we were going to have to explain to you where toads really come from. <laughs> <laughs> when a mama toad meets a daddy toad. And they really, really like each other. I thought it was you, witch curses. Isn't it witch curses? <laughs> make toads? Yeah. Maybe. I mean, listen, toads could come from a lot of places in the 17th century is I think what we're learning first and foremost today. I guess scientists will never know where toads come from. Yeah. No. Well, I, I want to know more about where sepsis comes from. Where sepsis comes from. Well, if you want just a fun little aside, my favorite scientific 18th century story about frogs is how, um, how it was proven once and for all that semen had to touch an egg to impregnate anything. And that is um, Lorenzo Spallanzi, who was a scientist who did a lot of studies about electricity in, in Italy in the 1800s. He also proved that semen had to physically touch an egg by doing experiments with frogs. And he proved this by letting frogs copulate and then by putting the male frogs in pink taffeta pants. And yes, it is recorded that the pants were pink and taffeta <laughs> and letting them copulate and showing that when the frogs were wearing their pink taffeta pants, they did not get the female frog's eggs pregnant, thereby proving for once and for all that semen and egg had to meet. And every time I read this story or see it referred to, I always think of the Warner Brothers with the frog that sings. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my raccoon gal. Send me a kiss by wire. Baby, my heart's on fire. If you refuse me, honey, you lose me. Then you'll be left alone, oh baby. Telephone and tell me I'm your own. Is he wearing pink pants? No, but I could imagine him wearing pink pants with his little umbrella. Yeah, I mean, it's a fit, you know. It's a look. It's a look. That is one of my favorite 18th century frog stories that also deals with with uh, the general field of midwifery and women's health. Um, but uh, the more popular theories of where this came from, besides imagination and blood clotting of backed up blood, was two theories that were popular for trying to explain disease before we had germ theory, uh, miasmas or contagion. Miasma was the belief that diseases were caused by bad smells and closed air. So smelling bad things could make you sick. So this is, if you think about, you guys are in Philadelphia, about the yellow fever epidemic. This is why to cure the city of yellow fever in the 1790s, um, they shot cannons and everybody went around smoking cigars because the smoke would clear the air and protect you from the miasma of the bad smell. That's not how, that didn't work, I take it. Uh, no, I mean, it did a little bit because, you know, mosquitoes are less likely to bite you if you're covered in a cloud of smoke. Yeah, we actually have an exhibit called Going Viral up right now that kind of walks visitors through humoral theory, miasma theory, up to germ theory. So yeah. there's sniffables in that exhibit as well. And I will say nothing more than that. God. So what we have in the exhibit, and I remember helping set this up and sniff testing some of these things. Oh, boy. Is the simulated sense of, was it 17th, 18th century Philadelphia? 
Yeah, like a damn Ooh. alley. Yeah. It, before there was plumbing in Philadelphia. Yeah. There's a, a company that makes scent beads. You know, you think about like that jar of colorful beads in your bathroom, but they make like bad smells too. Mm-hmm. And so we had to mix uh, some, uh, we had to create a cocktail, a specialty cocktail, if you will, of uh, a mixture of, you know, trash smells and musty basement. I think there was, I mean, there was like diaper in there or something. Locker room. Uh, to be fair, we did also, there are some good smells in the uh, window installation because part of why our cleaning products today are always fragranced like lemon or fresh linen is because of that, you know, the good smell to chase out the bad smell. And so part of why we have like particular fragrances are considered appropriate for cleaning products are because of this miasma theory. I'm glad, I mean, would be interesting to get a smoke scented pine salt. I would buy it, but I'm glad we took the lemon turn personally. Lemon, lemon is a much, a much more um, refreshing smell perhaps than uh, tobacco smoke or gunpowder. Uh, so miasma, that was the popular theory, was that because so many of the hospitals were overcrowded and dirty, and they thought that it could soak into the walls, like think like um, like Leviticus here with like the, you know, houses being infected with leprosy, that same kind of idea. Hi guys, just thought I'd mention that most modern biblical scholars believe that the leprosy referred to in the part of Leviticus that talks about houses having leprosy is actually probably... A mold like a black mold or a mildew and not actually the disease of leprosy better known today as Hansen's disease. Um, and then a lot of uh, uh, doctors would also blame the tradition of drinking coddle which was a hot alcohol fortified drink that would also then trap the heat inside of you so overheating um, which would cause the b- blood to ferment and trap the infection inside of you so that was a very popular theory. The other theory that was a little more controversial was contagion now, somehow hearing about this or that there would be something stuck in clothes that would cause this. But doctors resisted this idea because they didn't like the thought that they might be carrying disease from person to person. They much preferred to blame miasma or your imagination imagination <laughs> than that. Does this tie into the tidbit about how some doctors were really resistant to hand washing initially because of their reputation as gentlemen? Yes. And the, the, the assertion that a gentleman's hands could possibly be dirty. It does. This was oh. a huge resistance to this idea of hand washing, which um, eventually one poor soul, Ignaz Semmelweis, tries to convince everybody to do, not, to, not just wash their hands, but to um, create an antiseptic cleanser. Clearly, uh, not everybody was was completely convinced by this, and they would notice that there would be pure peril epidemics, right? And that certain practitioners would have like a string of cases in their own practice, um, either their private practice or within a hospital setting. And um, so they started figuring out this idea of contagion, that it seems to be something that maybe physicians were carrying to one another carrying from patient to patient, but they didn't really have a way of explaining this. And so most most 
uh, physicians were very resistant to that idea. So Oliver Wendell Holmes was actually one of the one of the earliest people to propose that this was something that that was being caused by physicians, and he was slapped down most heartily by Charles Meigs, who was a professor of midwifery um, at uh, Jefferson University there in Philadelphia and a member of the College of Physicians, uh, where the Mooner, Mooner Museum is located. And Charles Meigs was very offended at the thought that uh, he could be um, carrying this, right? He actually, um, uh, he, he was incredulous because he could not believe that he could possibly be the cause of death. And he thought that the, that the, the cause was simply inscrutable and actually could be explained in the whole rule of th- threes, that accidents happen in threes or groups. Uh, and never, never personally responsible for this. Yeah. Well, again, it's it's something that we try to we try not to portray doctors throughout history as being stupid because obviously they were working with the information and the scientific understanding that was available to them. But I think this is a, a good teachable moment that you should not bring your ego into your science. And that's why it's important to do the, you know, peer reviewed tests. You can't put too much of yourself into this because otherwise you're gonna end up like this guy. Meeks was pretty typical of his time. He was definitely very much known for his irascible temper and uh, and, and egotism. But um, around the same time that Oliver Wendell Holmes was writing in America, this young newly minted doctor named Ignaz Simmelweis um, in the Austro Austro Hungarian Empire. He was from Hungary. Start goes to university in Vienna and becomes an obstetrician. And he starts digging through the archives, and he had been trained in statistics, which was a new discipline at the time. And he um, notices that when there was no cadaver lab, puerperal fever incidences were very low. But after they um, started making the students dissect and actually practice um, uh, how to deliver a a child not on the leather mannequins, but on cadavers themselves, that rate started spiking. Um, and then after the maternity wards were divided into two, one uh, oversaw by midwives and one overseen by physicians with medical students, that the uh, midwife wing had very low puerperal fever rates, whereas the physician side had very high ones. So he actually compiles all of this and shows pretty um, pretty conclusively that there's a correlation between dissection and puerperal fever death. And I'm a man who loves a chart, you know, if you right. make a chart and a graph, chef's kiss to that. He had tons of these and almost nobody believed him mm. because they could not convince themselves. So he actually, well, he was, um, while he was uh, the assistant, he actually made everybody, he figured out it wasn't just enough to wash their hands because when he, because he was an avid dissector himself, but because he could still smell the putrefaction on his hands. Right, that he you had to use a chloride of lime to to to, to disinfect, right? And so mm-hmm. he actually um, made all of his students start doing this if they had dissected, and lo and behold, infection rates plummeted. And then after he realized that there was still occasionally an epidemic spurred by women who came in with erysipelas or cancer, and that that could also spread it, he realized that it wasn't merely cadaver material, but any sort of decaying, what he called decaying animal matter, that could cause this. That this was something that was absorbed within the, you know, the, the vagina or the uterus, and that this caused the inside of the body essentially to rot. So um, puerperal fever 
creates uh, what was called at the time blood poisoning or pyemia and causes the perioneum to simply dissolve into the organs and to cause abscesses to appear throughout the body. This is from Charles White, who was a Manchester physician uh, and considered an expert on pure peril fever in the 1770s in England. And I have a lovely quote. It's kind of lengthy if you'd like me to read it. So you go get the cold fit. So the cold fit returns and at last ends in a continual fever. At other times, no cold fit precedes the disease. It creeps on gradually and first shows itself by putrid sweats. So, of course, it first showed itself by the um, red streaks of infection, attended by a nausea or by vomitings of peracious matter and a looseness. At other times, the patient is racked with constant ten- tenesimus rigor and a frequent motions to make water, accompanied by swelling, pain, and soreness in the belly, and with pains in the head, back, breast, sides, hips, and iliac region with a cough and difficulty of breathing. There's commonly a wildness in the countenance and the head seems hurried and in some cases the face is, face is flushed. The tongue is at first white and moist and soon after is covered with a white fur or else it is dry, hard and brown and afterwards covered with a brownish fur. The patient usually nauseates all kinds of food and drink except what is cold and acidulated. The patient complains of great anxiety and oppression about the preacordia intended with sighings, lowness of spirits, lassitude, and great debility. So essentially, you're rotting from the inside out. And of course, with the theory and treatments that were prevalent in this time period, the recommended treatments were purging, bloodletting, and cathartics. So as to um, be made to vomit or to have massive diarrhea, to get all of the, what they thought was the infectious matter out of the intestines, and then of course to bloodlet, to, to, to lower the system and to reduce the flushing and the fever. So as you can imagine, the treatments themselves probably rushed many women to the grave. Absolutely, and again, at this time, they hadn't really cracked the code on bacterial and viral infections. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure they even had a microscope strong enough. To they had they had microscopes. Microscopes were invented in the 1500s, but they weren't very good yet. It's not yeah. around this time that they're improved enough that uh, microorganisms are starting to be identified. Simmelweis creates his theories in the mid-1840s, around 1845, 1846, and he starts trying to spread them, And but, but there's a lot of resistance. Um, and it's in 1857, I believe, that Louis Pasteur first identifies that yeast and bacteria are causes um, fermentation itself. Yeah, because we didn't get uh, microscopes strong enough to to distinguish viruses from bacteria until the early 20th century. Right, right. Uh, so they, they just had this idea of germs at the yeah. time. Which is a start. It's a start. It's a start. It's a start. But it takes. So eventually, Simmelweis's theories are completely. Um, he he is completely justified in his opinions and his arguments, but not until after his tragic death. So he was, like I said, Hungarian, um, and he is in Vienna, um, trying to make uh, doing his research and uh, and teaching. And this is during the the Habsburg Empire, right? Austria, uh, Hungary, and most of the Balkans. And so he actually gets involved in a very short-lived revolution where Hungary and some of the other provinces try to rebel against and, and temporarily succeed against rebelling against the Habsburg. 
So after the Habsburgs re reassert their power and uh, re-empower his superiors at the medical school and the Vienna hospital, he is even further alienated. And what initial acceptance of his ideas had, had happened are completely like shunted because uh, it's politically more apt to make fun of him and to, to dismiss him. So even, even a lot of people in hospitals who actually secretly started using the chlor- chloride of lime to disinfect things would publicly denounce him as just being crazy. Well, I'm glad they were still doing it, at least. Some of them did, not all of them, because it was still pretty controversial. But yeah. yes, the, the, their numbers go down, right? The death rates mm-hmm. go down. So they're clearly doing this, even though they're calling him a fool publicly. So he goes back to Budapest, where he's from, and becomes the head of the obstetric wards of the hospital there and ends up teaching there. And he does the same thing. But he starts becoming, he, he seems to have been manic depressive, and he, see, he starts getting pretty um, irascible in his own right and unlikable and more and more obsessed with trying to convince everybody he's right. And the more obsessed he becomes, the more people are like, yo, dude, you need to chill out. So and that, that that drives him on. So he finally like writes up all of the stuff in this crazy book that hundreds of pages are just spent um, berating his enemies about why, while, they're, why, while they're foolish and calling them murderers. And eventually he becomes an alcoholic. He may have become a sexual predator, groping women and masturbating mm. in front of his wife and possibly in public. Um, at any rate, he had a nervous breakdown enough for his wife to call in um, his colleagues for help. And what it looks like is that his colleagues told his wife they're going to put him in a private institution and instead in 1865 confined him to the absolutely horrible um, public mental institution where he died two weeks later of sepsis, possibly either caused, yes, by a cut he had on his finger from a delivery that went bad or from being beaten by the guards. Well, for the record, he was right. We'll give him that. He was right. (laughs) But, you know, I was really hoping that this would be like a yay, he saves women thing. But then he was also like, but now that you're all alive, let me abuse you a little bit. Just a little. He he did that a little bit. And um, and in 1865, the year he um, died is when Lister actually proposes the first inklings of germ theory based on his own experiences with um, festering wounds and reading Pasteur. So the very year he dies, you start actually having people be like, there is some sort of germ that is causing infections. And by 1879, streptococcal bacteria had been identified and shown to actually be the cause of sepsis in all cases. So he is eventually justified. Uh, There's a lot of resistance to germ theory, and some doctors were still arguing into the 20th century that this hand-washing fad was just dumb. So it took a long time. Really, it more had to like the old old guard had to die off bef- before we actually had this this notion that cleanliness is in fact perhaps next to godliness in medicine. Well, shoot! I mean, shout out to the carbolic spray as someone who has to get uh, you know obstetricians exams. Not well, not obstetricians yet, but you, yeah, I go to the OBGYN. You know, and uh, I appreciate a clean, gloved hand in my presence rather than a cadaver. Somebody who just dissected a bunch of bodies and then decided to stick some fingers in there. Yeah, he's got he's got a little 
a little something something under his fingernails from the from the the uh, slab there and uh at some hospitals, um, the, the, the students actually spend a lot of time hanging out in the cadaver labs and drinking and goofing off and would go straight from the cadaver labs to the, the, to the delivery rooms without washing, without even washing their hands. They would proudly show off their, their bloody, gooey hands. <sighs> um, of course, of course, because of course the women they were practicing on were, uh, uh, you know, subalterns where they were, you know, at the lowest of the low, they were absolutely destitute women often um without who weren't married so they they really did not give them absolutely any consideration or respect oh boy oh boy i mean i think this plays into a much larger history of uh american gynecology as well as just western gynecology but uh it's real real tough hi everyone sorry we had a weird audio glitch here i brought up marion sims who is known as the father of modern gynecology and also known as a monster who experimented on subaltern women without benefit of consent or anesthetic. Oh, of course he's, he's, he's at the same time too. Um, he's, this is when he is in fact uh, experimenting on, on slaves without anesthesia. Yes. He, he then went on when he moved North and there weren't as many enslaved women around. He, uh, instead, switch to recently immigrated Irish women because no one cared about them. But so, he marketed himself as the premier gynecologist. Yeah, I, I, I feel like there's going to be a lot of material in this podcast relating to American gynecology. But you know, we're in our current COVID nineteen pandemic, and the lessons of sepsis from back in ye old days still stand. You should you should wash your hands. You should. Often. I mean, and you still have, like, I do believe last spring, there was a, a news host who said that he doesn't wash his hands because he doesn't believe in germs because he can't see them. A little time traveler, do you think? Or Maybe, maybe. Hmm. Interesting theory. Uh, I want to say for the record that we, we can see germs. You just need a microscope, you, but you can see them with your eyes. Yes. Uh, for anyone wondering. <laughs> Wow. That's a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's up there with the kids say that the that birds aren't real and birds work for the bourgeoisie. I guess germs aren't real and they also work for the bourgeoisie. Of course. Great. Well, th- thank you for that. Uh, I am both amazed and horrified and glad that I don't have corpse hands performing <laughs> the cop smear. That'll be good. <laughs> We all we all are grateful, grateful for um, not having corpse hands performing our pap smears or any other sort of um, check on our bodies. Um, I am in any, in any case. <laughs> Nancy, do you have any questions for Marsha about purpureal fever? Is that how you pronounce it? Purpureal? I guess my only question would be uh, how long it took for them to really crack the code on what made a good cleanser and what didn't, because obviously with a bacteria depending on its structure, you need to make sure you break down the lipids and all that good stuff in the body fluids that they're being carried in. I mean, I'm not a soap expert, but how long did it take um, everyone else? So that was actually a big, uh, kind of a big deal. Um, Eventually that's why, eventually that's why they moved to trying to create an aseptic environment and not an antiseptic environment. So why he hit on chloride of lime and a lot of other places have hit on chloride of lime 
and why Lister hit upon carbolic acid was actually that those those substances were used to decontaminate sewage, right? Because um, lime, carbolic acid, both like will get rid of the sewage smell. Okay. And so, so tied, tied to that it, miasma perception. Yeah, both men were like, well, it works on sewage. And so they use this idea of an, uh, this analogical thinking. It's like if it works on, on cleaning up sewage, maybe it will work on cleaning up infections. Semmelweis experimented with that on, on, you know, on hand washing. And Lister experimented on that with uh, leg, leg wounds. And so that worked. The problem with both is that they're very harsh, right? So that was part of the resistance to washing with chloride of lime or doing the carbolic spray is that they're very harsh and actually cause a lot of tissue damage themselves if you, you know, overuse it, which is why they start just trying to create an aseptic environment where germs simply can't get in, hence the gloves, the masks, the hats, the, the gowns. So we still have this problem, right? When you use the antibacterial soap or the alcohol, it, it dries your hands out, right? Mm-hmm. And it can cause all kinds of rashes and problems in and of itself. Yeah. But those masks, they help uh, keep your germs in. Is that what you're saying? Uh, you know, if you believe in germs. <laughs> Yeah, for, for the kids in the back, the masks, they, they will help keep your uh, your uh, saliva droplets with you and not in, say, your surgical theater or maybe on your friends. It works. It won't hurt you. Your brain will get enough oxygen. You might smell your own coffee breath, but just brush your teeth. It'll be okay. So, Marcia, thanks for that. Do you have any appearances or publications you want to plug while you're here? Um, well, I have a forthcoming book about um, the actually the birth of obstetrics and gynecology in Britain and America. I don't touch on Semmelweis in this book, but I do talk about peripheral fever and some of the theories. It's called Fixing Women, the Birth of Obstetrics and Gynecology in Britain and America, and it will be published by the University of California Medical Humanities Press either sometime late this uh, fall or early next year. What's it called again? Fixing Women. The Birth of Obstetrics and Gynecology in Britain and America. We'll be sure to keep an eye out for that. Maybe we can even have it in our bookstore. And I do use a lot of archival material and rare books that I looked at and uh, accessed at the library there. That's part of the College of Physicians where the Mooner Museum is located. Well, fantastic. Awesome. So, Nancy, what's your favorite malady this week? My favorite malady this week is giant hogweed. which what? is giant hogweed, also known as giant cow parsnip, cow's bane, or cartwheel flower, or by its Latin name, which I might butcher and we might do multiple takes, Herculeum matagazianum. Herculeum matagazianum. There's a lot of syllables there, and I keep thinking the word's going to end, and it doesn't. Herculeum matagazianum. Nailed it. So, giant hogweed is a perennial herb. It's in the carrot family but it can grow up to 14 feet tall. It's for anyone who is low vision or just doesn't want to do a Google image search right now. It has a vertically ridged stem that's green with purple splotches and it has an umbrella of small white flowers at the top with really large green leafy but pointy leaves. Uh, It looks kind of like Queen Anne's lace if it had a tighter flower umbrella and was enormous. If you see this plant, do not touch it. And I'm going to explain why, but I just described it. If it's in your front yard, do not touch that. So giant hogweed is native to the Caucasus mountain region, which is modern day Turkey, Georgia, Russia, Azerbaijan. 
And it was imported into the U.S. and parts of Europe in the early 20th century, primarily as an ornamental garden plant. Again, it grows really huge, very impressive. Uh, the seeds of it are also used in Middle Eastern cooking. So it grows in moist soil and direct sunlight. So you find it often growing along streams, roadsides, yards, places like that. It was initially imported ornamentally, but it has become an invasive species and it's established in New, New England, the Mid-Atlantic region, the Pacific Northwest, as well as parts of Canada and the UK. So why am I describing a plant to you in such wonderful detail? The sap that this plant produces is extremely toxic and when it's combined with sunlight, it can cause third degree burns. So don't get the sap on your skin and go in the sun. Hey guys, the noise you're about to hear is not one of us ripping a wicked fart. It's actually Nancy's cat purring. But so when the skin is exposed to both the sap and the sun, severe skin rashes, blisters, and burns can occur, resulting sometimes in permanent scarring, discoloration, typical burn uh, issues. This is because that sap contains a photosensitizing chemical that basically prevents your skin from protecting itself from the sun, and you can get a severe sunburn in as little as 15 minutes. So it's Ouch. like reverse sunblock, basically, which is bad. Uh, this is another health PSA to always wear your sunblock because you don't want skin cancer. So generally, if you get the sap on your skin and then you're out in the sun, burn you have about 15 minutes before your skin starts to burn depending on the strength of the sun that day and blisters will start appearing within 48 hours if not sooner so just to be clear third degree burns are burns that extend through the epidermis which is the outer layer of skin the dermis which is the rest of the skin and actually into the fat layer so all the way through the skin in other words so these burns can actually go all the way through the skin just from sunlight all the way through. So they, you know, depending on the length of exposure and how much sap you got on your skin, sometimes it can be a first degree burn or a second degree burn. But if you're in the sun for, you know, basically more than 15 minutes, anything longer than that, you're at a severe risk of a second or third degree burn. So this is a bit confusing to me because sunlight by itself doesn't have enough energy to burn through the skin like that. Effectively, this sap, not only does it impede your body's ability to protect itself, but it also accelerates the effects of sunlight. So I didn't look into the, the chemistry of the sap in too much detail, but it has an effect both on your immune system and your ability to protect yourself from the sun, as well as its own independent interactions with sunlight that cause these burns. So it's, it's kind of a twofer on here. The the other kind of really bad scenario with this sap is getting it in your eyes, which again can cause temporary or possibly permanent blindness. And this sap is considered the most toxic when the plant is in flower, which again is going to change depending on where the plant is growing. But if you see a 14 foot tall Queen Anne's lace or a very large white flower and you live in one of these regions, proceed with the utmost caution. So, I do actually have a story of uh, someone who encountered this because you might be thinking like, how do you even get this sap on you, right? You know, who's running around just slapping plants willy-nilly? Me, first of all. But, um, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can brush up against this or encounter this plant without really realizing it if you don't know what to look for. Sorry, you, you just run around slapping plants? Do you not? No, I've never been offended by a plant. 
Well, no, sometimes you just want to touch them, you know, running through a field. I, I do what, sorry? I touch plants. I, I touch plants like that. Oh, I touch plants all the time. But yeah. personally, I also go out to Mount Moriah Cemetery in West Philly, which is a derelict cemetery with many, many large, beautiful, overgrown jungle plants as much as you can have in the Pacific, or I'm sorry, in the Northeast. It is and, no longer derelict, I should say. Well, it was part, derelict for many years. And yeah. It was kind of overgrown in parts, but the friends of Mount Moriah Cemetery are actually working very hard. Yeah, there's actually, so I'm actually, there's up. a volunteer day this Saturday. I'm going to go out and help. Oh, that's that. awesome. But yeah, you know, so, you know, poison ivy is your typical plant bad boy. Uh, I think this is like, this is like the the boss fight of poison ivy. So in July of 2018, a 17-year-old in Virginia unknowingly cut down a giant hogweed plant while working a summer landscaping job. So he was using like maybe a weed whacker or a mower and that, like, can spray the sap around, you know? And so he, in taking it down, he brushed the plant against his face, and he had cut it down, the sap's out, and exposed. So initially, he's working in the sun, he's a landscaper, sunburn is a common thing. So he initially thought he just had a sunburn. But he got home from work, and he got in the shower, and to, I, I'm going to quote him, or I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to quote his father, who says, quote, the skin on his face was basically peeling away and peeling off. It was large portions and chunks of, of skin coming off. Uh, the teen says, my mom saw it and said I had third degree burns. So I'm not using this teen's name. Other publications did at the time that this came out, but because this these are medical details and he was underage at the time, I'm not really comfortable mentioning him. And so this kid ended up going to the hospital because, again, his skin was peeling off, disintegrating off of his face and parts of his torso. And he spent almost three days in the hospital getting treatment for second and third degree burns. And he has to avoid sunlight for between six months and two years, depending on how well his recovery process goes. So what do you do if you encounter uh, giant hogweed? What's the treatment? What's the plan? What should you do if you realize that you might have touched one? Uh, So when he got to the hospital, they had him shower in cold water for an hour and a half to rinse off the sap and get his pH levels down to treat his burns. Hi all, Mike from the future here with a short correction. Nancy sent this to me, but it was too late for her to record this herself, so I'll just do it for her. The thing that the boy said about showering in cold water for an hour and a half and adjusting his pH levels or whatever, that is what he said happened to him. But our dermatology consultants tell us that this is complete nonsense. It isn't a pH thing. He didn't have to shower for an hour and a half. The temperature of the water didn't make a difference. Just complete gobbledygook is the way they put it. So don't believe it. So the two things you should do first if you encounter giant hogweed and you you think it came came in contact with your skin is get out of the sun, go inside, and wash any areas that might have been exposed with cold water. Again, correction. It doesn't have to be cold. The important thing is that you wash it and also that you use soap just like you treat a poison ivy rash. And so besides obviously having these burns, which are bad enough on their own, burn victims are also extremely vulnerable to secondary infections because you've got these large open wounds. And we were just talking about how wonderful those wounds are for bacterial infections to, to jump on into. Yes, though, so, if you get them where you got corporeal fever, man, you got some real problems. Oh, yeah. You got you got a bigger problem than, than the hogweed if you get corporeal fever from your burns. But, you yeah. know, you can get all kinds of other 
lovely bacterial infections with burns. So I'm, I'm glad that it looks like this teen didn't have any major infection issues and he got right to a hospital. But, um, you know, burns, obviously they, they don't look great. They don't feel great, but they can also come with a whole host of other issues. So again, if you live in any of the areas that we talked about, which again, to refresh everybody, they, in, in the northern U.S., you're going to be talking about the New England, Mid-Atlantic region, Pacific Northwest, and then again, parts of Canada and the U.K. And if you see a giant hogweed, you should avoid it and place an invasive species report with your state, local state uh, authorities or your locality authority. When I was looking into this online, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation has a hogweed control program. So basically, you call them up and you say, hey, there's a giant hogweed in my yard. And they will come remove it at no charge to landowners. But when they do this, they do it in full Tyvek PPE. So if you see, I'm going to say it again, if you see a giant hogweed, do not try to cut it down yourself. I know you might think that you're a plant wizard, that you're really great at mowing the lawn, whatever it is. But I really want to encourage you to, to call the pros on this one because uh, we love you very much and we don't want to see you get third degree burns from a plant. And then how to explain that you got third degree burns from a plant to all your friends. Yeah, that is an embarrassing thing to admit too, because if like if a plant can defeat you, what yeah. hope do you have in real life against yeah. mammals or even lizards or even fish, honestly? Yeah. I mean, I feel like plant is kind of low on the list of threats of mo in terms of most people's awareness. So that's maybe not a good one to have to have to explain. I'm spending what, like 30 minutes explaining it to you right now. You don't want to do this. So call the experts who will come and they will have protective equipment. But again, if you think you've seen a giant hogweed, maybe on a roadway, maybe it's in your yard, maybe you see it at a park, Call your local Department of Agriculture or Environmental Control or Invasive Species and tell them about it and see what they can do to help because you do not want to try and tackle this thing on your own. While we were talking about this, I very quickly looked up the mechanism of the chemistry of this, and it's actually oh, yeah. very interesting. I don't know if you... No, I mean, tell us about the chemistry. So the chemicals that are in the sap of this hogweed, is when they're exposed to UVA, so ultraviolet light... Mm -hmm. they form compounds that essentially disrupt the DNA in your cells. Oh, no. So they form covalent crosslinks with the thymine, which is one of the... D DNA is made up of, at its most base level, is made up of four nucleosides, and one of them is thymine. And so what happens is UVA activates the chemicals in the hogweed sap. Those chemicals are promiscuous in chemical terms, and form bonds with the thymine in your DNA. So in other words, thymine, which is part of the DNA chain in all of your cells, looks at these and says, oh, these are a lot sexier than the other things that I'm linked to right now. I want to link with these things instead. And hey, it links girl. to those. And it, yeah, and then it breaks up the uh, DNA in your cells. The cell, therefore, either goes cancerous or dies. M more frequently it dies. If you're very unlucky, it goes cancerous. Mm -hmm. And then, so then you have cell death, and that manifests as birds. So that... that that's how it works, as it turns out. I think it's very huh. interesting. Personally. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, so it sounds like effectively the the chemical. Sorry, my cat's singing to us. Um, the, Never apologize for that. Never the, apologize. The chemicals in the sap effectively hack the DNA of your skin and uh, convince it to cheat on cheat on its wife. Yep, and I don't know if I know how to pronounce the type of chemical that we're talking about here, but let me give it a try. Furanocumarins. 
are the name of these phototoxic chemicals, phototoxic being uh, poisonous in combination with light. Photo the bad light, boys. Toxic, toxic. The bad boys, we'll yeah. Them. Yep. Yep. I, I agree, Kat. I agree completely. <laughs> My cat's trying to convince me that because two out of three food dishes are empty, she needs fed. Yeah. Again, quick uh, first aid, if you happen to come in contact with a giant hogweed, first things you should do are cover and shelter those exposed areas of skin that might have hit the sap from sunlight, go inside, pull a sleeve over it, whatever you need to do, and go wash it with cold water. Again, not necessarily cold water. I mean, I guess it could be cold, right? It doesn't really matter what temperature it is. The important thing is that you wash it and that you wash it with soap. Definitely consult a physician. If not, go to the ER. Your burns or blisters will start to appear between 24 to 48 hours of contact with the plant. So even if at first it seems okay, it will probably not be okay. So definitely, uh, you know, cover your skin, cold water, call a doctor. And Nancy, how long do these uh, chemicals continue to affect you? So how long does your skin stay sensitive to the light? Well, that can depend on how quickly you get treatment and remove the sap from your skin. Again, th this teen, I hadn't, I couldn't find any updates on this particular case that happened in July of 2018. He was told that he needs to stay out of the sun for at least six months and up to two years, which again, makes sense if this, if this, uh, the chemicals in the sap have kind of hijacked your DNA, it's not going to be as simple as removing the sap from your skin. If it's had time to take effect, it will uh, take quite a lot, a lot of time to recover from that wow. so i mean i had heard about cow parsnip but i didn't realize it took that long for it to get out of your system yeah again I th i'm sure it's a case-by-case -case basis thankfully because this is an invasive species and because it is very large uh and it has to be you all doesn't have to be but it's most toxic when it's in flower i think that most places that we go get enough kind of yard maintenance that it wouldn't get into flower before it got cut down uh, however, you know, there are more and more cases of giant hogweed popping up. I mean, if New York State has to have a whole task force for it in the summer, it's not all that uncommon either. And, you know, it's one of these things where now that most of us live in cities, we may, may not be as familiar with what plants do and don't belong in our particular environments. So I want to encourage everyone to kind of get out and get familiar with the plants in your neighborhood, you know, as well as the animals and insects. And so, you know, who should and shouldn't be there and start to monitor the areas around your home, parks, you know, forest areas, derelict cemeteries, wherever it may be. And if you start to see anybody, anybody weird, you know, maybe look her up, maybe call your local authorities. It's currently in Philadelphia, we're dealing with the spotted lanternfly, which I won't even go into. I hate those things so much. But there's lots of really awesome plant identifying apps. And it's great socially distant outside activity. You should wear protective clothing and definitely familiarize yourself. If you don't already know what poison ivy and poison oak look like, take a look, burn it into your memory, leaves of three, let them be. And again, if you're in those regions in the U.S., giant hogweed. So keep an eye out. Ooh, uh, you said burn them into your memory. I should say you don't ever want to actually burn poison yes, ivy or poison do, oak. Do not no. literally burn it into your memory, but take a picture with your eyeballs of what poison ivy, poison oak, and depending on where you are, giant hogweed look like, and be on the lookout and stay safe. And don't get murdered? No, wait, that's not us. That's the other guys. <laughs> stay safe and guys. don't get sepsis. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. 
All right. Well, thank you for that, Nancy. Marcia, do you have any questions about what is cow parsnip? What the f- is a parsnip? I've seen warnings about that as well. Um, and I'm always now, when I see a giant plant, I'm like, is that? And it's, it kind of looks like Queen, Queen Anne's lace. No, it's yellow. It's, it's something else. Um, because I think we have it here in Minnesota as well. Oh, do you? Yeah, yeah. it's funny because Queen Anne's lace can get pretty tall, like maybe three, four foot and giant, giant hogweed, obviously much bigger, but it, you know, it's got to be four feet before it can be 13 feet. So especially when I'm in the car looking at kind of the wildflowers on the sides of highways, I'm always like, was that, was that it? Was that giant hogweed? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then I stay in my car and don't (laughs) go look at it. Uh, well, you know, I'm in a fairly, I mean, I'm, I'm in a, a small city here in, in, in Minnesota, but, um, you know, I, there's quite a bit of nature still around and, um, I do go for nature walks. So that is a concern, but I didn't realize it was the sunlight that actually caused, caused the burning and not, not just the plant itself. So yeah, you uh, have to have both to get the burns apparently. Uh, yeah, that sounds pretty awful. Um, I am now even more afraid of, of, of giant parsnip, crowd parsnip than I was before. You know, tuck your pants into your socks. You'll be all right. <laughs> it's also tick advice. Tuck your pants into your socks if you're going to check your crevices. Check your crevices. <laughs> Very important. But yep. not if you've been uh, dissecting. Yes. <laughs> Wash your all hands. All these rules. All these rules. <laughs> tuck, your so- tuck your pants into your socks, wash your hands, and then check your crevices. God. All we ever remember, all of these complicated regulations. I know. Where do toads come from? How does sepsis happen? What does giant hogweed look like? So you want to talk unicorn chasers? Yeah. I'm an IRL museum nerd, as I'm sure you can gather because I work at a museum. But lately, I have also become a virtual museum nerd in the form of Animal Crossing New Horizons. Which is a video game. And I am on a mission to catch every fish, every bug, every sea critter for my good dude Blathers, who is the either the curator slash collections manager of your museum in Animal Crossing. And the other night, I finally caught the elusive mahi mahi in Animal Crossing. It took me a long time. I had used you, you got to dig up clams and make all this bait. It's a whole thing, but I finally got them. And my virtual curator is pleased in a way that I don't think I can ever please my real life curator. That's a little beautiful and a little sad. Also, I know your real life curator. I can please her with like, like memes and things, but I don't know. She's very easily pleased. She's very easily pleased, but I don't know if there's, if she's got any like particular, I mean, she does actually. Um, If I can ever get like a prostate tumor, she would be pretty pleased. Um, But that's not currently within my power to do. So, hey, do you have prostate cancer? Are you getting a surgery? You should hit us up at the Mütter Museum and make a curator very happy. (laughs) This is not a joke. I mean, that's true. No, it's not a joke. She would really love your prostate tumor if you you have one. Again, we are still an active collecting institution and we do uh, sometimes take specimens are pri- our current focus is on primary donor specimens so directly from the person from which the body part or the item came and our one of our recent acquisitions was the heart of a man who has a condition called acromegaly and he was getting a heart transplant and so he gave us his old heart oh nice and, 
And so again, uh, you know, we're, we're interested in collecting around more modern conditions, things that are pretty unique to our modern life. And maybe we didn't see as much throughout history. So things, things like prostate cancer and cancers that are influenced by our modern diet and things like that. So, you know, if, if you have prostate cancer and you're getting an operation and there might be some tissue left over after a biopsy, definitely give us a call. Just, just email us if you're getting any body parts removed, just in case. Yeah, just in but, case. But, you know, uh, Mike, what is your unicorn chaser this week? Well, I'd like it to be my dog because, you know, I have this puppy that I adopted during quarantine and I really love him very much. His name is Queequeg. Unfortunately, he also recently caught fleas and these fleas appeared like overnight. Oh, no. I swear, two days ago, I gave him a flea combing and they weren't there. And then today I was uh, giving him a, a combing or a brushing and he was covered in them. So I don't know like where they came from or how quickly he acquired them, maybe from the dog park. So he can't be my unicorn chaser because he, as much as I love him, he's actually causing me uh, more stress than he is joy. So what I'm going to say is my unicorn chaser has been the new Star Trek show, Star Trek Lower Decks, which is the Star Trek animated show. It's not the first Star Trek animated show. A lot of people forget that there was a Star Trek the animated series, I should say, in the uh, oh, so good. mid-70s. Uh, but this new one is an explicitly comedic show, but it is also Star Trek canon. And let's get super nerdy here. The reason why that's exciting is that they're going to be able to show us a lot of things that you just can't afford to show in live action. You know, it's so like a bunch of weird aliens or even like the technology that you can't... Like, you know, if you watch Star Trek The Next Generation, there were a whole lot of like blue plastic drums everywhere because that's what they could afford to dress the set with. You know, whereas in animation, it doesn't cost any more to do like a really cool looking uh, tech thing than it does to do a blue plastic drum. So I'm enjoying the TV show. It's funny and it's uh, touching and it's well voice acted. Uh, the animation style, it's grown on me. But from a, a real nerd point of view, uh, they made something uh, canon in the Star Trek universe, which was always kind of halfway joke, which is cetacean ops. So little known fact in Star Trek The Next Generation, there was an entire section of the ship where the dolphins lived. And the dolphins did like dolphin science and they were dolphin Starfleet officers and of they had like dolphin quarters and everything, but it was way too expensive to ever show in the TV show. Well, in the animated series, there's no reason why they can't show cetacean ops and the creators of the show promised that they had, at some point they would. So you get to meet all of the dolphin Starfleet officers. Did and they show any tribbles on this uh, animated series? So one of the characters has a keychain with a, uh, a tribble on it with like hmm. a little, little fake toy tribble on it. Which I okay, I was amazing. worried you were going to say it was like a dead triple, and I was like, what? Uh, probably here? not. I mean, I think they're all uh, a little bit too evolved to be killing tribbles and putting them on keychains. But then again, you never know, because tribbles are abundant and a vermin species. But uh, then it was also a dog in a costume in the original. There was a dog in it. So I guess you do lose some of the charm of like a dog in a, in a, in a lizard costume or whatever it was. He had a horn, if I recall correctly. Yeah, he did have a horn. So you lose a little bit of that charm, but on the other hand, you know, you get like weird tentacle aliens all the time, which the, the classic joke in Star Trek is that all aliens look like humans with bumps on their foreheads, right? Uh, yeah, I mean... No, because it's way too expensive to do almost anything else. Well, and also now, all all aliens would fall in love with Captain Kirk. Right, yes, certainly. Uh, but that's just natural. I mean, who doesn't love Captain Kirk? Hamina, Hamina. William, I mean, who, who can't fall in love with William Shatner and his, uh, his dead sexiness, right? Absolutely. So to his credit, he did um, make sure that the first interracial kiss on TV happened by sabotaging every other take where they didn't kiss. 
Yeah. We are super off topic now and anybody who yeah. is listening to this for medical reasons, I apologize. I feel like we got to cut most of our... We're going to cut most of the stuff out. But just remember... William Shatner talking, but... Everything I do, I do with William Shatner. I'm losing all my hair while my belly is getting fatter. I believe that is the, the song lyric. I, I have never heard this song, but I would like to... Based I will on that. link to it in the show notes. <laughs> and All right. Well, thanks very much to our special guest, Professor Marsha D. Nickel. What does D stand for? I've known you for over Don. 10 years. I don't it, know what. It stands for Don. Don. Marsha Don Nichols. Yeah. Of Food Court U, <laughs> University of Minnesota, Rochester. And keep an eye out for her upcoming book. Which we will link to in the show notes as well when it comes out. And also, maybe we'll do an event. Well, thank you guys for having me. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, to our latest episode of My Favorite Malady. We'll be back again in two weeks with more maladies. history, maladies, with more All things to talk about. Until then, stay safe and uh, don't get sepsis. I, I don't. I don't I think they're definitely going to sue us, Nancy. Yes, I know. If we do that, they're definitely going to sue us. I know, but we have to say it. Bye, everybody. Bye. And I'm in my cone. And I, whoop, whoop, whoop. Go. I'm going to start that again.